Good morning, Lakeside. Welcome to the second week of 2023. This time of year, usually between the, the holidays, I start looking at a lot of those lists that all the news organizations put out, kind of the year in review of what happened in 2022. It's a good way to make sure I'm catching up on all the big stories. It's time for me to say, man, has it been a year already since that happened? And I will tell you that if you read a whole bunch of 2022 in review stories, that is not a good way to get stoked about 2023. Just because on the old report card, 22 did not really get an A plus. Um, I mean, the stock market had its worst year since 08. We were dealing with what they're calling a tridemic and you know, inflation, you're familiar with that one. And it was also frustrating that when they did their year in review, the New York Times, they just gave up and they called 2022 the year that we lost it. The year that we lost it, because they were talking about how angry everybody was and how they just got fed up, they were over it, and they wanted to move on. Christianity Today called 2022 the year of exhaustion and anger. And if you want to know one moment, I was trying to think, well, what image sums up 2022 in the mindset everybody's in? I thought, well, here it is right here. Um, my slides are moving slow today. The slap heard around the world. This is Will Smith slapping the stuffing out of Chris Rock at the Oscars because the Fresh Prince had just had it. He's like, I'm over it. And he walked up and he slapped somebody. And a lot of us have had that kind of feeling recently, right? We've had that kind of moment where we're just over it. And we're just frustrated with everything going on around us. It's just the difference is most of us don't do it on stage at the Oscars, right? We have that advantage. Um, we feel like we're at our wits end. Whether it's the economy or the politics or the world news or the personal stuff that's going on in each of our lives. And even for those of us who are followers of Jesus, all of this stuff is a make us, it's enough to make us just say, God, what are you doing? How long are you gonna let this go on before you fix it? You know that feeling. And there's a reason that the pastors at Lakeside named this sermon series what they did over a year ago. They call it uh, good news in a bad news world. And today's passage, John 16, could not be a better fit for that because that is exactly what Jesus is gonna be telling us about here as he interacts with the disciples because he is about to drop terrible news on these disciples. He says, I'm leaving. But he wants them to understand that right on the other side of the bad news, there is incredibly good news. He's telling me, trust me, hang in there. You're not gonna wanna miss the final chapter in this story that I am writing. And as I've been working on this message, sorrow turned to joy. It's been a tough couple of weeks. My family basically missed Christmas because everybody was sick. I spent Friday night helping somebody get checked into intensive care because of what they're dealing with. And while I was working on this, a friend called and they're dealing with a tragedy in their family. I've been helping them walk through that. So this is all real, nothing theoretical. And I can look around this room and tell a lot of your stories, things you're walking through right now. So as Jesus is talking to us, he's telling us about our lives when he talks about sorrow turned to joy. So as we get started, let's pray that God will guide us toward understanding whatever hard situation you're in today, what Jesus wants to teach us here. Dear Lord, we thank you for this scene you've given us where Jesus is interacting with the disciples and they're confused. They're trying to understand what it is you're going to do. And Lord, you give us these stories so that we can know because we get to see how it all played out. We pray that you'll just guide us to understand what Jesus wants us to see in our lives this week 
as we talk this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Here in John 16, we are still going to what's known as the farewell discourse. So this is several chapters in John where Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples, giving them final instructions, final thoughts, before he heads out to the Garden of Gethsemane and he triggers all the events that are gonna lead to his crucifixion and his resurrection. And during this time in the upper room, if you read the last few chapters leading up to this, he's already told him several times, I'm going to be leaving. This is the building theme of the night. And here in chapter 16, verse 16, he says again, I'm leaving, but he says it in this really cryptic way. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. And the disciples' heads have to just be spinning at this point. They're trying to figure out what he's saying and they don't understand the idea of him leaving because you look at the week so far. This is the week that we call Holy Week. What they've seen because it all seems like it's coming together finally. On Sunday, they saw Jerusalem welcome him into the city as a king. On Monday, they saw Jesus go to the temple, overthrow the tables and throw out the moneylenders. On Tuesday, he let go on the Pharisees. He unleashed what's known as the seven woes and he finally put the Pharisees in their place. And the disciples have to be thinking, it is coming together now. This is everything we've been waiting for. He is the Messiah. He is gonna conquer. And then Thursday night comes and he says, I'm leaving. What are they supposed to make out of that? Or is he leaving? Because he says, in a little while, you'll see me again. What is he trying to get at? And maybe the reason that he has told them several times over the course of the evening, I'm leaving, is because it's, they can't accept it because it's too frightening to think about. These guys have gone all in. They left behind their jobs and their homes to follow Jesus. They have seen him do miracle after miracle. They're convinced they are all in, this is the Messiah. And the idea that if he turns out to be anything but that, they have no fallback. What do we do now? And think about all of us. It is too frightening to think about what if everything I've put my hope on turns out to be a giant disappointment? What do I do now? And in verse 17 and 18, we see the disciples, they go over and they huddle up and they have a conversation about this. In verse uh, 17, it says, so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, you can see the air quotes, and you will not see me. And again, a little while. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? So look at what they're focusing on, timeline. Timeline's really important to them. They wanna know how long is a little while. And we're the same way, aren't we? If something's gonna affect me, I wanna know when is this gonna go down? And if it sounds difficult, I wanna know how long is it gonna take? How long do I have to endure this? So they're saying, what is a little while? And Jesus, of course, he knows what they're thinking. So he comes over and he inserts himself into the conversation. He says, you don't get the little while thing, right? That's what's throwing you off. But you see what he doesn't do when he elaborates? He never addresses the timeline. He never explains how long a little while is. The timeline is front of mind for the disciples, but Jesus skips right over that and he focuses on the big picture of what he is accomplishing here. And when he explains the big picture, he's not sugarcoating it. In verse 20, he says, you will weep and lament. He's saying, it's gonna be tough. And to make that even worse while you're suffering, you know what the world's gonna be doing? They're not coming over and putting their arm around your shoulder saying, hang in there, bud, it's gonna be okay. They're rejoicing. They're doing a touchdown dance on your sorrow because the world thinks they won. Jesus says, that's what's coming. Be ready. But 
But that's not the end of the story because it continues, verse 20, your sorrow will turn to joy. In verse 22, he says, I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. No one can take away this joy from you. The disciples are about to go on this crazy ride. They're gonna go from the lowest to the highest. And how does that happen? And what does that mean for all of us and the ride that we are all going on all the time between joy and sorrow? Well, let's dive in. We're gonna look at five takeaways for us in this conversation between Jesus and the disciples. Point number one, accept that you don't get to know everything. Man, I hate point number one, okay? Just for the record. Hate point number one. I'm sure there's a lot of you that are like me. I face all these situations every week where I say, if somebody would just give me all the information, I could handle this perfectly. And I think about all the times that we rely on our own ability to do enough research, to do enough info gathering, because we think if I can just gather all the relevant details, I will have an ironclad guarantee that I will succeed because I did my homework. How many of you are that person? Yeah, that's me. And here's the news. For all of us who believe we can gather enough information that we won't fail, it's a myth. You don't get to know everything. Your search for control through information is an idol. You're making an idol out of being in control by gaining enough information. I like historical questions. Here's one of my favorite ones. Who was the last person in the world who knew everything there was to know? Because there was a point when human knowledge was limited enough that one person could master all of it. And people love to discuss this. Some people say it was Aristotle in ancient Greece. Some people say it was a scientist named Roger Bacon around 1200. Some people say it was Leonardo da Vinci around 1500. But everyone agrees that this person who knew everything could not have lived after the Middle Ages because then knowledge just exploded. And it got to the point where nobody could know everything. But here's the thing about this person, whoever they were, the last one who knew everything, they didn't actually know everything. They knew what humans knew. That's all they knew at the time. And even if they were on top of human knowledge mountain, they still only had a whiff of what God knows at any time. And throughout history, what I just said, to say that humans don't know everything, that was not a news flash throughout human history. For most of our history, humans know there are mysteries that they cannot figure out. Why do people get sick? Who knew? How do they get well? They didn't know. Why does the moon change shape throughout the course of a month? What's on the other side of the ocean? Why do some people like cottage cheese? We don't know. These are mysteries. We've solved some of them. But around the time of the Enlightenment, in the 1600s, this is the age of reason. This is when humans decided our knowledge is strong enough, we can figure everything out. Science will solve every mystery. We'll know all the answers. And it's only worse now because we all carry a searchable library in our hands that can answer any question in two seconds. Well, we have to realize that this idea that we wanna know everything God knows, that's a sin. And don't underestimate the severity of that sin. What got us in trouble in the first place in the Garden of Eden? We wanted the knowledge that God had. What got us in trouble at the Tower of Babel? We wanted to rise to God's level. We are constantly trying to get to his level. But in this conversation in John 16, Jesus is reminding the disciples of what the Bible says over and over again. I am God, you're not. You're just gonna have to trust me. God is saying, I have you in my hand. 
you're right here. I will tell you what you need to know. And that really is the essence of faith, isn't it? Faith is I trust in something I can't prove. I'm trusting in something I can't see with my own eyes. And we have to remember this. Every time we are tempted to ask, just like the disciples did, what is a little while? What do you mean by that? How often have you felt like David? In Psalm 13, verse one, he said this, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long, Lord, is what David's asking. And I did not really comprehend what I was doing when I questioned God on this until I became a manager. Became a departmental manager. Insert parent would solve this answer also. Because when I became a manager at work, suddenly I'm the one where all the grumbling is landing. I'm the one that people go to lunch and say, why doesn't he tell us more information? Why is he withholding the stuff that we need to know to do our jobs? And it's targeted at me. But what I'm thinking is I can't tell you about every new product that we have planned for the next two years. I can't tell you what our pricing structure is gonna be. I can't tell you what HR is thinking about doing with your job. And I found myself in a meeting one time saying, look, you're just gonna have to trust that your managers have your best interest in mind. And when those words came out of my mouth, it was like, boom. Because God was saying to me, did you hear what you just said? Child of mine who questions me every time I tell you I'm gonna do something and I don't explain it to you. I realized this is what I'd been doing the whole time. Jesus helped the disciples understand more about what was gonna happen, but he didn't tell them everything. He's God, we're not. And we have to accept that being a Christian requires a life of faith. So Jesus doesn't tell us the timing of everything, but he does provide enough detail about what the experience is gonna be like. And he's being honest in John 16. It's gonna be tough. In verse 20, he says, you're going to weep and lament. The world's gonna rejoice while you're going through it. The powers of evil will think they won because they can't comprehend that God intended a tough time. They think it must've been out of God's control that this is going down, specifically that Jesus is gonna die on a cross. And to give them a vivid picture, Jesus says, here's how I'm gonna help you understand this. He goes to a metaphor that the Bible uses a lot when God wants us to understand anguish. Jesus says, it's gonna be like childbirth. Now I am not here to say I know what that's like, okay? That would be mansplaining. I'm trying to give mansplaining up in 2023. But a lot of you do. A lot of you know what this is like, and a lot of the rest of us have watched someone we love go through it. And Jesus' era, the people he's talking to, this metaphor is even stronger because he's talking to people with no modern medicine to make it easier, make it safer. So Jesus is telling them, this is gonna be rough. It's gonna be like a woman giving birth. But then he says what? In verse 21, on the other side of that pain, on the other side of that effort, there is the joy of a new life. There will be a baby taking its first breath. There will be a family being created. There will be a family growing. And what happens to the pain when a new mom holds that baby in her arms? Jesus says it starts to fade away because what she's looking at is the new life that has just come out of this travail she was in. At a basic level, we understand every day this idea that I have to go through some difficult situation to be transformed. That is exercise. That's education. 
That's any medical treatment. It's not pleasant, but we know it's going to make things better in the long run. It's even in our favorite stories. Every sports movie, the team looks like they're never gonna win. They've been derailed. Every romantic film, there's always a point where the couple breaks up, it's like they'll never get back together, but we always know they will, right? We know they're gonna win the big game. We know the couple's gonna get back together. And that's why we love the movies because redemption is always just around the corner and we're waiting for that, the payoff that everything's gonna be okay. And that is the story of our own salvation. There was no other way for sinful people to enter God's presence than for Jesus to suffer in our place. He had to go through this in order to earn our salvation. But these stories, they're not so enjoyable when it's my story, when I'm the one living it out, when our transformation requires some sort of dark and difficult journey. We all wish we had this. You can go ahead, Vince, that slide. We all wish that there was this giant skip button in our lives. We all wish we could just smash that button and skip right over the pain, don't we? Just a few days ago, I was sitting with a friend who had lost a family member unexpectedly. And she said, I wish it was a year from now. You know that feeling? I wish I could just be there. I know the sun will shine again. Can't I just go to that? I know that I'll feel okay laughing again at some point. Can't I just go to that? But what scripture is telling us, if we skip the pain, we're short-circuiting the process. God is doing something during that period. If we jump 24 hours ahead, or if we jump a year ahead, or if even if we jump all the way to heaven, we won't be the person God's turning us into through this process. Let's listen to Paul. Here's a guy who knew a thing or two about suffering. In Romans chapter five, verses three through five, he said this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that our suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Look at the chain of events Paul lays out there. He is showing that suffering leads to endurance, endurance leads to character, character leads to hope. There's a direct path back from hope to suffering. It's the chain that gets us there, both in our personal lives and when Jesus was about to head to the cross in chapter 16. The only hope for mankind was his suffering. Jesus' character didn't need development, don't be wrong about that, but our hearts would only change through the transformation of salvation that he was about to achieve. So what I have come to understand from scripture is that hard times are not a speed bump on the way to growth and joy. The hard times are part of the journey to growth and joy. Hard times are the raw material that our growth and joy gets made out of. Without hard times, there is no growth and joy. They're part of God's plan. It's not a plan B that's getting in the way. God planned it that way. In John 16, Jesus is talking specifically about his suffering and death. And earlier in Jesus' ministry, Peter had heard Jesus talking this way and he was starting to understand. He said, I think Jesus just said he's going to have to suffer and die. And in Matthew 16, Peter goes to Jesus. He says, we can't let that happen to you. 
You're the Messiah. You can't suffer and die. Peter was looking for the skip button. He's like, I'm gonna hit that thing. We're gonna skip the suffering. And what did Jesus say to Peter when he did that? He turned to Peter in Matthew 16. He said, get behind me, Satan. Because he knew if I hit skip on the suffering, mankind will not be saved. Jesus had to go through this. Now, let me just be clear on it. Jesus' suffering earned our salvation because he was a perfect sacrifice. Your suffering does not earn your salvation. Jesus did, but your suffering does sanctify you. It does make you more like Jesus. This is a method that God uses so often. Now, our feelings are gonna tell us no to this. Our feelings are gonna look at suffering and say, this can't be God's plan. This is wrong. Our feelings are gonna say, get this over with right now, end it. But we have to remind ourselves what we know is true from scripture. God is in control and pain is not the end of the story. I've always liked this illustration of a train. This is used by a lot of evangelistic teams. So you've got the three parts of the train. Facts, faith, feelings. Facts have to drive the train. Faith is the coal that goes into that engine. You are putting your faith behind the facts and that will drive your life. Keep feelings in the right place, which is the caboose. Your feelings are important, they matter. It's what it is to be a human, but they can't drive the train because your feelings will lie to you. And when our feelings are crushes, we have to keep going back to like, what do I know? I know God is sovereign. I know God is love. I know God is doing something in this situation. Put your faith behind the fact that whatever you're going through is God is doing something here and let that guide your feelings. But even if we do understand that, even if we do know God's doing something here, even if we know that we'll be more like him when we get to the other side of this, it doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. And that doesn't mean we can't cry out with pain when the transformation we're going through is difficult. And that's our third fact, acknowledge the sorrow. Jesus warns the disciples in verse 20, you will weep, you will lament. This word lament, it's all over the Bible. And lament is a prayer in which we pour out sorrow, pain, or watch this one, confusion. Even when I don't know what's going on, I can lament, I can pray it to God. God is showing us it's okay to bring that pain to me. There are stories of lament throughout the Bible. He's saying, bring it to me. It doesn't mean we're questioning his wisdom. It just means we're telling him the process hurts. The Puritans told a story about a soldier who was a Christian, got wounded in battle. And he's laying on the ground, he's badly wounded, he's in terrible pain. And the other soldiers come around him and they're marveling that even though he's in horrible pain, he's not cursing God. And they said, how do you do that? He said, brothers, God tells us we can groan, but not grumble. There is a difference. Groaning doesn't mean you're grumbling. Groaning just says this hurts God. It doesn't mean I'm questioning you. I'm just telling you it hurts right now. And it took me a long time to accept that it's okay to groan. I grew up in conservative Christian Midwestern farm families. That's a long history of burying your feelings. That's what that means. It means we believe God is sovereign. We believe he always does the right thing. Therefore it must be good, which is true. But we also took that to mean, therefore I have to act like nothing happened and act like it doesn't hurt. That's not what I see in the Bible now. This came to a head for me when we had our daughter Katie about 20 years ago. 
Most of you know who she is. She's a little redhead, rides around the wagon, sits up here, yells out the name of the pastors when they come on stage. Um, when it became apparent in her life early on that her life was not gonna be typical. That means our life isn't gonna be typical. And I tried to take it like a good Midwestern Christian, right? It's God's will, obviously for the good in some form, and I'm gonna act like nothing happened. Well, you can't ignore it. Something happened and it wasn't easy. And during that time, I came across this essay that's always made the rounds among parents who have kids with special needs. And it talks about how when you're about to have a baby, it's like you're on a plane going to Italy. Only when the plane lands and you get out, you discover you've landed in Holland. And you say, hey, I wanted to go to Italy. Italy's gorgeous. That's where I've always wanted to go and I'm stuck in Holland. But over time, you begin to realize that Holland's a pretty beautiful place too. And Holland's not so bad. It's not where I plan to go, but it's not so bad. And there's some comfort in that, but the metaphor doesn't really hold up because Holland is still a pretty great place. People still take vacations to go to Holland. And I realized for us, it was often more like we got off the plane and we were in the Sahara Desert. Felt like where we landed because a lot of times it felt and it still does feel like it's not really that beautiful in its own way. It's hard and it's lonely. And there's just not much on the horizon a lot of days that we're looking ahead to. But here's the thing that I've learned. When you're in the middle of a desolate place, if you're in the Sahara Desert, when God comes over the hill, you can't miss him. You will see him coming. You will see him at work in your life when it's desolate because I'm not taking comfort in anything else right now. It's all him when he shows up and I can't miss his hand in our life. And even though our destination has turned out many times to feel more like a desert than Italy, we have certainly seen some beautiful things. Honestly, if it weren't for the way things have gone in our family with Katie, I wouldn't be a very good Christian man, I don't think. And I can tell you almost guaranteed I wouldn't be standing right here opening the Bible with you today if it hadn't guided me down that path because of what God did in our lives. But our experience has included losses that we didn't expect. Our experience means there are milestones we don't get to see that other people do and that's hard, but it's okay to go to God and tell him that. Jesus himself told the disciples, what you're about to experience is like the pain of childbirth. It's okay to groan to God when it's painful. But we're not gonna leave it at languishing in sorrow on our own. We're gonna take it to God because our next point is ask God for strength and clarity. In chapter 16, verses 23 and 24, Jesus says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, this is the big one, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. The disciples, I think what he's doing is alluding to this discussion they had earlier. They couldn't figure out what he was talking about. What did they do? They went off in their little huddle and they started talking about themselves. And Jesus is like, yo, right here, why don't you ask me? I can explain to you what you need to know. He went over into the circle and he began to give them enough information that they needed to move forward. There is certainly a place for Christian community. It's essential, actually. You have to be in Christian community. You have to be talking with other believers. But 
We need to be taking our problems to God through prayer, through Bible study. Don't just count on the opinions of other humans to figure things out. That's what Jesus was showing the disciples. He said, ask me. James 1 through 5 is a verse I go to probably once a week. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. He is saying, ask me. When you are not sure how to move forward, you're like, I have no idea what the next step is. Ask him. Saying, I'll give you enough wisdom. I read something this week by a commentator, and Matthew Henry wrote it 300 years ago, and it hit me like it was written today. He said, God never chastises us for asking him too much. He chastises us because we don't ask enough. And that's what Jesus is saying, ask me. James is saying, inspired by the Holy Spirit, go to God, ask him for wisdom when you need it. Don't stumble around in the dark trying to figure this out on your own. He won't tell us everything, but he'll tell us enough. Even if you don't know what to ask for. Have you been there? I don't even know what to pray. I've been to so many doctor's appointments where up is down. It's like, I don't even know what to pray for, God. If you gave me what I asked for right now, I wouldn't even know what to ask. Go to him anyway. Romans 8.26 says the Holy Spirit intercedes for us when we don't know what to pray. Say, God, I need help. I don't know what that looks like. Help me. Cry out to him. He wants us to do that. And know that in time, maybe even after this life is over, God will make clear everything we need to know. Verse 23 here, it says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. In the ESV Bible we're using, a better translation might be, you will have no further questions for me at that point. Saying it will be clear, you won't need to ask anymore because you will understand at some point. Ask God for help understanding where you're at, what you should do. He will show you what you need to know when you need to know it. Okay, that's a lot of heavy. Let's turn the corner because Jesus turns the corner in this passage quickly. Verse 21, he says, remind yourselves that the mother in labor finds joy when the baby arrives. And he tells the disciples in verse 22, that's you I'm talking about. The joy is coming your way. It's gonna be rough here for a bit, but I will see you again. Your hearts will rejoice. No one will take away this joy because they didn't give it to you. They can't take away what they didn't give you. I gave it to you. The joy is coming from me. Our call is not to sweep sorrow under the rug and act like it's not there, but our call is also not to wallow in the sorrow. Our call is to find joy in the midst of suffering. So when you're there, anticipate it. Anticipate this joy that's been promised to us. Jesus made good on his promise in John 16. He said, I will see you again. And he did. The disciples saw it. They saw his resurrected body. They saw him out of the grave. They saw him alive. And then they all spent the rest of their lives telling everybody what they saw because they were so convinced. And at the end of John's life, Jesus gave him a vision that he wrote down for us. It's the book of Revelation. And it shows what the future holds for those who put their faith in Jesus. In the next to last book, chapter of the Bible, Revelation 21, John recorded this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is where? With man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. 
Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what waits for those who trust God through Christ. No more tears, no more mourning. That's when the joy will be full. And look at this, what is the source of that joy? I'm gonna bust some of your assumptions. Heaven is not the perfect golf course. Heaven is not an eternal spa day. Heaven is you get to be in the presence of God. I think we will discard all these things we enjoy now like kids' toys because we will enjoy the presence of God for all of eternity if we trust in Christ to get us there. This is why Jesus took the painful journey he's talking about in John 16. He had to take our place on that cross. He had to pay for our sin to enter the presence of God forever, all we have to do is say, I can't do it myself. I can't earn it. I trust in Jesus that he paid the price for my sins. Have you done that? Is this the promise that waits for you? Do you have an ironclad guarantee that you will have eternal joy because you trust in Christ alone? That's what he's offering to us. And I realize when we talk about this, we stand here and say, hey, there is eternal joy awaiting if you trust in Jesus. I know a lot of religions promise that. A lot of philosophies. Buddhists believe you can achieve nirvana eventually. Muslims believe in paradise. Even Vikings believe in Valhalla. There's this long tradition of people saying there is a paradise out there. So what makes this different? Jesus is promising something a lot of people promised. Well, what makes it different is the same thing that always makes Christianity different. We have a risen Christ who said it. He made a promise and he delivered on it. The disciples watched him Walk around alive from the dead. He is alive today. Jesus proved we can trust him because he made a promise in John 16. He said, I'm leaving in a little while, but you will see me again in a little while. And he delivered on it. And every book in your Bible after the book of John is written by somebody who said, I saw him alive and let me tell you why I believe in him. That is the New Testament. Why were they willing to give their lives to this? Because they'd seen it firsthand. They knew it was true. They knew you can trust him, lean on him, we can believe him. So let me talk here at the end today to all of us who do profess to be followers of Jesus. If you profess to know Christ, show it. Show some joy, you have the answer. There are a bunch of American Christians walking around with their heads down because our society is not going the direction of the Bible. And I'm not gonna disagree, it is, it's going a bad direction. But what are we called to do? In the midst of a dark world, are we supposed to go Will Smith and walk around slapping people verbally because we disagree with them? No, I think our call is to show joy in this world. I recently came across the last sermon that a famous pastor named John Piper gave, uh, pastor of a church up in the Twin Cities called Bethlehem Baptist. And it was interesting what he chose to say on his last Sunday as the lead pastor, he told his congregation this, what the world needs from the church is our indomitable joy in Jesus in the midst of suffering and sorrow. If someone talks to you and they talk to your unsaved neighbor or your unsaved coworker, do they see more joy coming out of you or out of them? Do they see a difference? Look what we believe, this passage in Revelation 21. We're saying we have found the path to eternal joy Why don't we show it to the people around us? Show the hope that is in you. There is a story from church history. It comes back to me pretty much every time I get my head down. 
Every time I start moping because things are difficult, it involves this guy, Martin Luther, the famous reformer. Luther was a force of nature, personality-wise. He was blunt, he was in your face, he had no filter. He was a character, so he's a man of extreme emotion. And the woman he married was every bit his equal, named Katharina. Luther was a Catholic monk who realized he could not be saved through his works. He put his faith in Christ alone. Katharina was a former nun who made the same journey. So you got a monk and a nun get married and these two would blow your doors off if you had them over for dinner. She was toe to toe with Martin Luther. And there's a story about how Luther was down in the dumps about something going on. He'd been in this really black mood for days. And he comes home one day, he walks in the front door and here stands Katerina dressed all in black. And he says, did someone die? She said, well, if the great Martin Luther is so depressed, surely the God in heaven is dead. I'm here to mourn. (laughs) And Luther understood the attitude correction. (laughs) He got the message from Katerina and he straightened up because she was saying, what is wrong with you? I don't care how bad it is, God is on the throne. What would make you so mournful if God is in heaven and he has promised you salvation? Get your head up. And I think of Katerina all the time with that. This is what Jesus is telling us in John 16. When things look like they couldn't be darker, God's on the throne. It's not out of control. He's got his hands on this and we have salvation. We have a joy that is beyond anything the world can give us. Whatever you're facing, put your trust in the promise that Jesus will see us through and he will bring us joy on the other side. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for the story you've given us that we get to see real people struggling with real things. People who don't know what's coming. The disciples were scared. They didn't have the full story that we do. We know how it ends. Lord, help us to put ourselves in that same situation with whatever it is we're facing. You have promised you're in control of this. You are doing a work Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for the suffering Jesus endured on our behalf, that he made this journey that leads to ultimate joy for us because he paid the price of our sin. Lord, I pray, be an encouragement to everyone in this room today. Whatever they're battling, if it's finances, jobs, death, illness, family struggles, Lord, everyone here is fighting something right now. I pray, be an encouragement Help us to put our trust in you and know that you are transforming us into something better because you have our best interests in mind. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't have their faith in Christ right now, Lord, I pray you'll speak to their hearts. Show them they don't have to face this world alone. They can be certain of where they will spend eternity because you have already paid the price. We just have to accept it. God, I pray be an encouragement to all of us today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.